Welcome to Fruitball with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Daryl DK, the 20-year-old U.S. forward who's on fire at Barnsley. We've had some great guests lately, including Kevin Egan, Courtney Stith, and Andre Carlisle, and John Arnold. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Do Story. All eight episodes are out Later in the podcast, Chris Whittingham will join me to break down the soccer weekend. But first, here's my interview with Daryl DK. Our guest now is 20-year-old U.S. men's national team forward Daryl DK, who has been lighting it up in the championship with Barnsley on loan from Orlando City with seven goals in his first 13 games in England. Daryl, congratulations on everything you're doing, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. Um, it seems kind of crazy. Just barely over a year ago, you were at the University of Virginia playing soccer. Then you had an impressive rookie season with Orlando last year, and now you're one of the most talked about goal scorers in English soccer for a team that could get promoted to the Premier League. What goes through your mind when you think of all the things that have happened for you in such a short time? I think I have to sometimes, you know, take a step back because things have moved so quickly for me. I mean, a year and a half ago, as you said, you know, I was playing for, you know, I was playing college soccer and I had no idea, you know, if I was going to even stay in college or, you know, become a professional. And then even after I became a professional, you know, I was with Orlando for a year and then now I'm on loan overseas. So, you know, everything is just kind of moving so fast. And then got my first national team cap. So, yeah, every, everything is just kind of moving so fast. And, uh, no, I, I'm obviously super excited, super happy about everything that's happening. You know, it's kind of the, the dream per se. You know, it's kind of unfolding, you know, right before my eyes in a short period of time. And I no, I, I enjoy it for sure. And it's something I just kind of want to, you know, keep building on and keep, you know, keep living the dream. I try to watch as many of your games as possible, although ESPN Plus doesn't show all of them. I'm still trying to figure out how they make those decisions. But I get an alert on my phone every moment you score a goal. I have an app set up for that, and my phone has been absolutely lighting up like crazy lately. What's your favorite goal that you've scored over there so far? Was it the screamer against Birmingham City? Yeah, I think I think my favorite goal was probably the Birmingham City. I mean, it was at home, so it was good. And then also, I think it's probably one of the better goals I've ever scored. So it was a, it was a big moment for me, and I enjoyed it. And then, of course, you know, we went on to win the game as well. What was your thought process on even trying that shot? Because there's not many forwards out there, in my opinion, who could pull that off. And you tore the net off the goal near post like what were you thinking during that process? no I mean I mean I mean Carlton had played me the ball out wide and I just kind of you know when I was in the position I was, I was sitting there thinking you know I've because I because you know we work on you know different angles shooting all, all that you know during training and you know it's just one of the spots that I'd kind of been working on and you know I, I, I had I had a few I had a little bit of space and I was you know I was like you know let's give it a try let's see let's see let's see how this goes and you know happily it went into the back of the net <laughs> I mean, the championship is known as this rough-and-tumble league. Um, you're a big guy. What's your height and weight, and how have you tried to approach the physical style there? Yeah, I mean, I'm 6'2", 188 centimeters, and maybe like I'm like 215, 220, fluctuate anywhere around there. So, 
No, I mean, it's different because, I mean, obviously the league is much more physical than anything I've ever been exposed to. You know, you look at the center backs, they're all, you know, giants and every player giants and stuff like that. But, I mean, it's kind of, it's been good for me, you know. It's kind of made me kind of learn how to, you know, other ways to hold up the ball, how to use my brain so I can maybe avoid those physical battles and doing all these other things to, you know, allow to, myself to help the team succeed and help myself succeed as well. So I think it's just kind of, you know, a different way of thinking than anything I've been uh, used to. What are some of the specific things on the field that you feel like you've been learning recently over there? For sure, the thing I've been, you know, the, you know, the ability, the will to kind of compete. For me, I think there's sometimes, whether it be, uh, you know, whether it just be like a simple aerial duel or a simple challenge or something like that, I know that <laughs> in the championship, uh, a defender might come through me, you know, and if I don't go and uh, try and trying to compete or do something, you know, I'm more than likely going to lose that battle. And then another thing for me is kind of, you know, my movement, because I think sometimes, you know, as I just said before, you know, they're very, you know, very physical, smart defenders around. So with the new competition, new level, you know, you have to kind of think of, okay, how can I find myself some space? How can I get behind the defender? How can I make his life difficult? And, you know, how can I create space for the teammates and things like that, which all comes, you know, with, you know, thinking rather than just being a big physical body and, you know, competing with them. And I think that's something that I've, you know, learned and continue to learn every single game. How would you describe what it's like to live in Barnsley compared to Orlando? Uh, cold. Is <laughs> cold is the main one. Uh, yesterday, yesterday it's funny, funny. Yesterday, I actually was, I was sitting in my living room, windows open, super sunny outside. You, you, can, you can probably maybe see right now. It's super sunny right now, and then about thirty minutes later, it's snowing, and then about thirty minutes after that, it's sunny outside again. And then I promise you, it starts snowing again like forty minutes later. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> so. That is the main thing I will, I'll say is the weather's a little bit different because in Orlando it's kind of sunny all the time. It'll rain. It definitely rains a lot, but it's sunny all the time there, a lot warmer. Um, in terms of people, I mean, everybody's friendly here in Barnsley. Everybody's kind of uh, nice. I haven't been able to kind of go out and experience very many things because of lockdown. I mean, even when I go to, you know, a supermarket or the store, you know, gro get my groceries or anything, you know, you, some people will notice me and they'll say hello and everyone seems pretty friendly for the most part. So... I enjoy that. I would hope that they're very happy that you're there and scoring so many goals for their team, though I guess it would be a, 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 t a different situation if there were no virus and the stadiums were full and you could move around in a non-lockdown situation. Um, it's kind of crazy to me that you became eligible for a UK work permit literally the day before you left for England because you played in a US national team game that night, I, I mean, people like to give U.S. soccer stick for some things, and I get it sometimes, but organizing games outside a FIFA window that literally allow you to make a potentially career-changing move to English soccer seems like genius to me. If you had not played in that national team game, would you be with Orlando City right now? Yeah, if I had not played in that game, I would be, I would, I would be in preseason right now with Orlando City. and. <laughs> You know, for one, it was, you know, a great opportunity to, you know, because it was my first national team cap as well. So, you know, great opportunity to do that and, you know, play and represent the crest. So that was phenomenal. And then obviously, as you just said, yeah, I was able to come here and I would not have been able to come here if it wasn't for that. So it's, uh, you know, it's something great for me. And 
you know, it was a great experience, a pretty chaotic 24 hours, I guess. <laughs> Not really chaotic, but it was just like, oh, like pretty quick, you know, it was like, oh, first national team cap. And then, oh, you're flying. <laughs> so you got to go pack. You got to fly. Luckily, I was already in Orlando, but it's already had on most of my things. But still, you know, it was, it was crazy. It was different. <laughs> it is incredible. Um, you're from Edmond, Oklahoma, a suburb of Oklahoma City. You're from a soccer-playing Nigerian-American family with five children, including your older brother, Bright, who played in MLS and for Nigeria, and your sister, Courtney, who also played for Nigeria. What was it like growing up in that soccer-playing family in a state like Oklahoma that's known more for gridiron football than soccer? Yeah, no, it's um, it's definitely different because, I mean, you so on on the family side i mean you know my parents played you know my as you said my oldest brother played i have cousins who've played in you know premier leagues and turkish premier leagues and everything so like i've you know i have the kind of background of everybody who knows how to play you know soccer knows how to play football and i think it's kind of helped build me like my personality because i mean if you talk to me or you know me i i love football like i love watching games games are always on you go home to my house you know uh, you know, Chelsea, Arsenal, Man United, like they're always going to be on TV. You see my brother's trophies all around. So it's just kind of like a been always a big soccer family, whether it be watching on TV, going to my sibling soccer games and everybody kind of knows the game. So aside from me, you know, watching it all the time, you know, I also get to, you know, witness, you know, quality football and hear things that my parents and my siblings have to say because they all know the game. So for me, that's something that I've kind of been able to use and grow and grow and grow on. I think it's something that is the reason that I'm, you know, where I am, like who I am today. And so on the other side of that, you know, being from Oklahoma, it's different because, you know, there's no academy in Oklahoma. There's no there's nothing like that. So I, you know, I played club soccer. I played high school. I trained with the USL team there. And, you know, it's it's very different for that in that regard. And I think sometimes players, you know, might get a little bit discouraged because, you know, they're not playing with the academies, the Sporting Kansas Academies and FC Dallas Academies and maybe makes it a little bit more difficult to go to, you know, a DA, um, you know, going to play with the DA or play with the U.S. Youth National Team and stuff like that. But, you know, I think just kind of with the work and, you know, having coaches and, you know, good players around me, it kind of helped me being in that kind of situation to, you know, grow and grow and, you know, kind of learn how to, you know, adapt and grow as a player. Did you think at all about trying tackle football when you were a kid in Oklahoma? <laughs> so I never, I... I always loved playing football, you know, you'd go in your backyard or, you know, big yard space and play with all your friends. And I was, I've always been kind of like one of the bigger guys as well. So, so I was pretty decent at it. And, and no, but, you know, I've had coaches try and talk to my parents and coaches try and talk to my brother, like for my brother and stuff like that to try and play football. My parents didn't like it. You know, they say, uh, you know, it's too dangerous, which to be fair is pretty dangerous as well. And no, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm enjoying soccer. It's working out all right, I think. <laughs> so, so I, you know, it's fine. And of course, I would want him to try it. But, you know, right now, I can't complain. I think things are going okay. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious, your family fascinates me. Um, you know, I, I remember watching Bright play um, and Courtney in the Women's World Cup. Um, I, the fact that Bright's quite a bit older than you is, is interesting. I saw he's 14 years older than you. And, and I'm always sort of fascinated by 
younger siblings. So like Gio Reyna, for example, I know had his, you know, his older brother when he was alive had a big influence on him because Gio wanted to be like his brother in soccer and, and loved it when he was allowed to play with the older brother. Yeah. Was that a similar phenomenon with you or were there too many years between you and Bright? No, it's a hundred percent the same thing. I mean, you can ask anybody, uh, I'll be boring. Like he, he's literally like my idol, you know, like every single time since I've been a young, a young kid, I've always been like, Oh, I want to, I want to play like my brother. I want to, I want to be better than my brother. I want to, when I grow up, I want to go and I want to go and, you know, break all of his records. I want to do what he did and stuff. Cause even in high school, you know, he always had tons of records, tons of medals and stuff like that. I'm like, you know, I'm going to be better than him. <laughs> I mean, and I, and he, to, to his credit, he's helped me, you know, kind of, do that he's helped me trying to be better than him and have a better career and not even just him you know the coaches and family and everybody has kind of played a huge role in that but no he's he's kind of been someone that I've kind of aspired to you know be like model my game like and he obviously is very knowledgeable about the game so he still even helps me to this day yeah how often do you hear from family members like after a game uh immediately I I can (laughs) go back to my family group chat and see about 100 messages about you know commenting about the play-by-play of the game like oh this just happened that just happened feel like I might as well just be sitting in the living room watching the game with them <laughs> or, or like on, on ESPN with the little uh, the little commentary things or whatever <laughs> saying every single thing that happens. That's literally what my phone looks like after. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned sort of your extended family also were players. I, I had seen Emmanuel Emanike. Was he one yeah, of them? Exactly, were, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Were there any other cousins that, that play professionally? Well, so he plays professional, like he plays professional soccer, but like I have other cousins who have played you know professional basketball as well so it's it's an athletic family so like Ovi and Megan like he plays in France he played at Oral Roberts University so he's been all over the place as well (laughs) interesting and from your family's perspective at what point did your older family members whether it was your parents or theirs or theirs at what point did they come from Nigeria to the U.S. and and why Oklahoma um I think the exact year, I want to say it was like 35, 30, 30 to 35 years ago is when my parents moved because all, all my siblings were born in the States and, you know, they moved to Oklahoma when they came. They, you know, my parents didn't have that much and Oklahoma is, you know, kind of a cheaper, uh, a nice little family area and they moved, they didn't just move here by themselves. They moved with a whole bunch of like, you know, other people with them to Nigeria and they kind of had like their, uh, you know, close following, close friends and stuff like that to kind of help build each other in the new life. And you know, they did it for themselves. They did it for, you know, all of us to have a better life. And even though Oklahoma may not be heard, you know, I think it's a, it's a great spot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great spot. And I'm happy they went there. You're talking to a Midwesterner from Kansas who grew up in like the suburbs of Kansas City, which I, uh, I think Ed, Edmond feels somewhat similar when I've been there in Oklahoma City. It's not like you're out in the sticks or anything. It's a city. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. What else we have here? Lots of other questions for Daryl DK. I really appreciate you taking the time for coming on the show. Um, you were you mentioned this. You were never part of a soccer academy, never part of a U.S. youth national team. Did you ever think that might limit your chances for a professional career? 100%. I think that's kind of a mental battle that every player kind of has. I think... I think from, you know, being from Oklahoma, you see all these guys who play on, you know, the U.S. national team and stuff like that, and they're not playing club, you know. They're playing for LA Galaxy Academy, New York Red Bulls Academy, and you're seeing all those players, and you're seeing all these young homegrowns, you know, like Andrew Carlton and Chris Goslin, you know, working up in the ranks, and you're looking at them, and you're like, oh, these people all play for academies. How am I 
going to, you know, how am I going to be there? How am I going to be able to reach those heights if I'm not already competing like those guys? And I'm not going to lie, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a little bit of a mental battle, but you kind of think to yourself and you're like, oh, like, there's other people, you know, who still, you know, you can still go to college and, and you know, work your way up to go professionally. Because even then, you know, some people are thinking, how can I go there without signing a homegrown and doing all these things as other people. But no, and, and even then when you get to college, you still look at a lot of the top universities, all from academies, all from DA systems and stuff like that. So you, you start to think and you're like, how am I going to do this? But you kind of learn and look at yourself and think that, you know, everybody kind of has like a different path. Everyone kind of has a different route. And for me, luckily, I even had my brother right next to me. I mean, he was a perfect example for me to look at. Okay, it's hard work, grind and, you know, pushing yourself to reach those top limits and knowing that even though your situation is different, you know, you can still reach those levels. You can still, you know, be as good as some of these top, top players. And luckily I think today I'm reached a decent level. And I think there's tons of players who not even just Oklahoma, but other places who may not have the opportunity to have a DA or have an academy to, I think there's tons of quality players who just, you know, just unfortunately don't have that opportunity. We did have Chris Richards on the podcast about a week and a half ago, and I asked him who was standing out in national team camp, and he mentioned you. But he also mentioned that you guys had some battles back in the day. <laughs> and I wanted, get, <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to get I wanted to get your take on what those battles were like. Nah, so so it's funny. Chris and I Chris and I actually go way back. So when we were I don't know how old we were. We must have been, I don't know, I must have, I want to say like 15, 16, something like that. When we were, maybe even younger than that, 14, I don't know. But we were, we both went to region camp and like we all stayed in like the same building, stuff like that. Like him and I were really good friends and with the region three team. And that's kind of how we first met. And then after, during regionals, because he played for a team in Alabama and I played for a team in Oklahoma and we ended up playing each other. And I was like, hey, yo, like, <laughs> what's up? And we ended up playing, obviously ended up winning. And, 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 you know, and then after that, you know, later, obviously his career took off, like, incredibly going down, you know, going over to Texas and then to Bayern and, you know, now Hoffenheim. But, oh, yeah, him and I kind of go way back and good, you know, good relationship with him. Good guy. That's really cool. Um People also like to criticize college soccer in the U.S. for not preparing players for the professional game very well. Can people still play college soccer like you did for a couple of years and make it as a pro, in your opinion? 100%. I think that's one of the... One of the things I, I, I will, um, you know, give like good credit to UVA is I had good coaching. I was put into a good, a good environment where I was learning, you know, to kind of be a professional, learning how being a professional would be. And I think George and a lot of staff do a good job at that. And in addition to that, I have, you know, incredible teammates who, who, you know, were also, you know, kind of treated themselves as, as professionals. Like our captain, Robin Ophelma, probably one of the most professional people I have, ended up getting drafted to Colorado Rapids and then, you know, going back off to Germany. Henry Kessler, you know, he was drafted in the same class as I am. And now you see him, he's getting, you know, with the under 23, he's getting called into camps. He's doing very well. Joe Bell went overseas to Norway and now you're just looking at this class, Brett Halsey got drafted as well. So, you know, there's tons and tons of players, tons of quality players. I mean, you can see just from the team that I played on that went to the national championship, like almost every single one of those players who was able to, you know, went to the draft and got drafted, you know? So I think, I, I think a hundred percent players can. 
I mean, and obviously the MLS draft does occasionally produce some gems. I, you were not the top pick. You were the fifth pick in the draft last year. Like now when people are seeing what you're doing, they're kind of like amused that like there was one team enter Miami that made passed you over twice before you got picked by Orlando. Did it bother you at all at the time that three MLS teams picked other players in the draft ahead of you or did that not bother you? Uh, I didn't, that, that didn't bother me at all. I I mean, I, I mean, I looked at the players in front of me as well. Like they're all, you know, great players, top players. So I wasn't really going to be stressed about that. And, you know, I kind of knew my own worth. I kind of knew, okay, if I get, no matter where I am, whether it be, you know, one, whether it be 35, I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, I know I can go out there and I'm going to have to go and work for whatever I do. Like the number is just a number for people to go and talk on social media and be like, oh, you drafted one, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's actually once you get there and once you do things and the impact you make. You recently got your second cap with the U.S. men's national team. You were in the, the camp uh, with the, the A squad. Um, I guess technically you're still eligible to choose Nigeria. Has Nigeria still been in touch with you or are you definitely going to play for the U.S. as of now? Uh, I mean, right now, I just, I mean, I just kind of do my own thing. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't know. My brother, you know, my brother does all, all of that kind of stuff with the Nigeria if, in terms of playing and talking. But right now, you know, I'm just kind of focused on my stuff with Barnsley and then U.S. national team when it comes, or, you know, whatever comes right now. I, I'm being honest, I don't know. <laughs> What was that recent U.S. national team camp like for you? It was good. It was phenomenal. I mean, obviously, it was great to meet up with the, you know, meet up with the coaches again and then see tons of guys I either hadn't seen forever or, you know, hadn't seen in a really long time. And, you know, you see top guys, you know, like Christian, Gio and guys, you know, you see on TV, everyone's talking about it and you're like, oh, I, you know, I've never seen these people. I've only seen them on TV or on social media and stuff. And then, you know, seeing them in person, just seeing some of the stuff they do on the field, you're just, wow, you're amazed. And then also, you know, being able to, you know, meet them and talk to them in person and hear about their daily lives and becoming, you know, actually good friends with them. I think it's a, it's a great thing to have. Your loan with Barnsley goes through the end of this season. There will be offers for you over there. Do you want to stay in Europe after that? How would you feel if you have to come back to Orlando? Yeah, I mean, right now, as I said, I'm just kind of like, I kind of play. I play, I play, you know, what I do. I do everything day by day. And, you know, just kind of make sure I keep improving. And then when all that time comes for, like, you know, going back to Orlando, staying here, going somewhere, you know, that's when I kind of focus on it. Right now, I just kind of want to, wherever I can go to, you know, grow as a player, wherever I can go and, you know, kind of push my career for, further and, you know, take the step further. So, I mean, whether it be in Orlando, whether it be over here in Europe, it doesn't matter to me. I just kind of, uh, just kind of want to keep growing as a player and improving. I've got to ask you about something you posted on social media recently. Did a fan really send you a photo to autograph that was a photo of Josie Altador? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I opened it and I was, I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> I was like, interesting. I, I, I guess I see the resemblance, but uh, a little bit different. <laughs> oh, goodness. But that was funny. Honest mistake. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it seems like you have a pretty good sense of humor about these things. And from what I've heard, like, like you like to keep it light with your teammates and they, they like being around you, whether it's Orlando, whether it's, it's Barnsley. Um, what's, like, what's it like right now with a team that I think has spent one season in the top flight in its entire history and you guys are in position to potentially get promoted. I mean, there's a lot of work to do, 
But what's that like right now being in the middle of that? Yeah. It's um, it's obviously phenomenal. I mean, I think at the beginning of the year, you know, the team might have had, you know, a little bit of different expectations. But now we've, you know, kind of put ourselves in a position where we could get promoted and where you could, you know, reach playoffs. And I think that, you know, this team, I think everybody kind of realizes, you know, what kind of team we have and what we're capable of. I mean, we've improved. I mean, yes, we may have lost Chelsea, but at the same time, you know, I think we competed very, very well. We've competed with, you know, the top teams in the league and, you know, any type of play style. So we've kind of proved that we can compete with anybody and know what we're capable of and know what can possibly happen. So, you know, everyone obviously, you know, you know, heads down, heads down and just kind of driving forward and, you know, making sure we're pushing towards the, you know, what we want. And I think, obviously, you know, emotions are high. Everyone's super happy because, of, you know, what we're doing. And But at the same time, we kind of remain to stay focused and, you know, realizing that we're not, you know, we're not just going to be, we're not going to be satisfied if we, you know, we don't reach what we want to reach, which is which is playoffs, which is going up. We're not going to be satisfied. So, and now we're obviously capable of doing all that. So we're just going to keep going. Well, good luck with everything the rest of this season. 20-year-old U.S. men's national team forward Daryl DK has seven goals in his first 13 games in England with Barnsley. Congrats on everything you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Sweet. Thank you so much. Let's take a quick break, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system. You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, Copa Libertadores, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now it's time to break down the soccer weekend with my friend Chris Whittingham, the radio voice of Inter Miami and a co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. Are you prepared for the return of MLS? Because I, I'm starting to feel the bug. I went to an Inter-Miami preseason match uh, today, and I'm starting to like, I don't know if I can add MLS on top of all the soccer I'm already watching. <laughs> Our schedules for soccer are about to get oh insane. <laughs> um, and and I kind of love it. It's, it's, a, it's a lot, but I got excited actually just for MLS starting up with the midweek CONCACAF Champions League, uh, which we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, MLS team's off to a good start, uh, all on the road uh, first week and all in a position to advance, potentially five MLS teams in the final eight. I believe they're all favored to advance just based off of what they've done so far. So, I mean, that's remarkable. Yeah. So, of course, we're going to jinx it and MLS will (laughs) end up doing what they always end up doing in CONCACAF Champions League. Is that cynical of me? (laughs) 
Uh, no, I think it's accurate. I mean, until proven otherwise, they kind of have to do it in this competition, right? <laughs> oh, shoot. Uh, I do want to start, because it was a busy weekend uh, for soccer, uh, women's soccer, men's soccer, Europe, U.S. Uh, but let's start with the Premier League. And I'm going to assume for the purposes of this exercise, that Man City and Man United will finish in the Premier League top four. I think that's a pretty safe assumption at this point. But what I want to talk about now is there's a tremendous race for the last two spots to qualify for Champions League in the Premier League, spot three and spot four. Who do you think will take the other two spots because right now we've got an amazing fight between Leicester, West Ham, Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs, and potentially even Everton because they have games in hand. They're playing on Monday. And I'm wondering, because I, I, I will say this, I have gamed this out and looked at the remaining yes. schedules of all of these teams. But what is your sense? No, I, I actually I, I feel bad for my lack of preparedness for this segment, but uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm going to rule two teams out straight away. I'm just not a believer in Everton. I haven't been all season. I know they pulled off some good results, but I think when it comes down to it, I don't think they're consistent enough. They don't have enough going forward. It's it seems though they mostly try and grind games out rather than express themselves and beat their opponents. So I don't think Everton are, are going to get there. And off their last two results, I actually thought Spurs were kind of on their way to a late season resurgence, playing a bunch of bad opponents, but dropping points to Newcastle and then uh, losing in the manner which they did to Manchester United, I think they're out. So it, really from there, Liverpool, they've won three in a row. They've managed to bounce back, but uh, you kind of wonder down the stretch when they play you know, tougher opponents next up in the league after they play Real Madrid is is Leeds. They still have to play Manchester United. So I, I, I do think that Liverpool, there's just something about them that Real Madrid exposed. Where, look, not every team's Real Madrid, but um, I, I, I'm, I still have my doubts there. Leicester are falling away as well, but I don't know. I feel like with a fair bit of fitness, they have a chance. They had a COVID situation today where some players broke protocols, which is why they didn't play. But Leicester might be able to get over the line. I think you have to say right now, West Ham and Chelsea are the favorites uh, based off of form uh, for Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel and based off of a miraculous season. I mean, if you had said after 31 match days that West Ham and Leicester are in the top four, I mean, that's absolutely extraordinary. And I think West Ham is actually the more likely. They just You look at that lineup, it's solid from back to front. Jesse Lingard is playing out of his mind right now. Yeah. They're getting contributions from all over the pitch. So I'm going to say what's kind of been the top four for um, at least the last couple of weeks. I'll, I'll go for West Ham and Chelsea as my favorites to, to stay in the top four. I would have said before I looked at the remaining schedules, West Ham and Chelsea, the, mm -hmm. the two most likely. And, and I still think there's a, a decent chance. I feel like that West Brom game was a total aberration for Tuchel's Chelsea. And what we've seen is a team that aside from that game, defends much better than it did before he came. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's going to really help them. But I went through game by game, and I want to acknowledge first here, there's always a ton of surprises results-wise at the Especially end of the Premier season. League season. Yeah, but I mean, like, so like going through game by game and saying, oh, that'll be a tie, that'll be a win, that'll be a loss. It's helpful to actually look at who's got the easier and who's got the tougher schedules in the remaining seven games or eight games in a couple of cases here. Um, 
But I was slightly surprised for a couple of reasons here. So I went through the rest of the games for all of these aspirants for the top four and then figured out how many points I think they're going to finish on. And West Ham, I have finishing third. Wow. With some ease at 73 points. Wow. Um, Which that surprised me that uh, I had them... Finishing third one and then finishing third with some room to spare, um, just based on what I saw. Um, uh, that, you know, a lot of that might be dependent. We've got West Ham hosting Chelsea on April 24th, which is a pretty huge game. Uh, and I think could really dictate some some fortunes there. What if the that'd be like one way. of the biggest games of the season? Now we were kind of <laughs> on our way to, I believe, Fulham play Newcastle on the final day. They do they host Newcastle on the final day. So if Fulham get to within touching distance of Newcastle, that game can be huge. But right now, in terms of deciding the three major races in England, it seems like Chelsea West Ham might be one of the games of the season. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that game. Um, I have Liverpool finishing fourth. Wow. On 69 points, nice. Um, and <laughs> part of that is because I didn't realize the the stretch run here, who Liverpool has as opponents. Liverpool finishes with West Brom, Burnley, and Crystal Palace. Hmm. And I realized that Anfield has suddenly become the opposite of Fortress Anfield for Liverpool. And so there's no guarantees, obviously, but... I've got Liverpool finishing on 69 and Chelsea finishing on 68. Wow. And Chelsea finishes, its last four games are at Man City, at home to Arsenal, at home against Leicester, and at Aston Villa. So a much, much more difficult final four games for Chelsea than for Liverpool. So that's why I have Liverpool getting that uh, fourth place spot by by a point, but I also assumed a tie between West Ham and Chelsea, and that may not be the case when those two teams meet. Lots of stuff can happen. I had Leicester finishing behind two points behind Chelsea, Spurs three points behind Leicester, and Everton five points behind Spurs, and pretty far out of it. I, I was surprised. Great- like, how how sad would it be though if Leicester? I mean. Again, another season of being in the top four for so much of that run and then being unable to finish it. The other thing that's worth considering, now, this is a remote possibility, but I was listening to TalkSport today while I was driving around, and they ran through the scenario, this West Ham guest on, and he was like, and they presented this scenario to him, and he was horrified. There is a scenario in which Chelsea doesn't finish in the top four and wins the Champions League. Arsenal (laughs) don't finish in the top four and win the Europa League. And a maximum of five teams can make the Champions League from any one country. Meaning, if that scenario comes to pass, the team that doesn't make it is the team that finishes fourth in the Premier League. So there is an outside chance, a very outside chance, that West Ham or Leicester or someone can finish fourth in the Premier League and not make the Champions League. So that's another thing to consider as the European competitions play out. Yeah, that's wild. I I am not thinking Arsenal is going to win Europa League. (laughs) Call me crazy. (laughs) <laughs> and there's a chance, I guess, that they have a second leg in Slavia Prague to get to a semifinal. But, I mean, there's an outside chance. I mean, maybe. And and I actually think Chelsea winning Champions League is more likely than Arsenal winning Europa <laughs> <laughs> Arsenal fans aren't going to love that. But, yeah, I mean, I think you might be right. But, like, in terms of Chelsea here, like, 
there's a lot of different permutations on how they might finish their season here that are going to have a huge impact on how pe- how people view this season for Chelsea, how people mm-hmm. view Thomas Tuchel. One thing we definitely know is that Christian Pulisic is suddenly back playing well again. Yes. And appears, fingers crossed, to be healthy, even though he, even on his second goal <laughs> this weekend, oh, I, was, yeah. I, I thought he pulled up hurt scoring. <laughs> yeah, and I, was like, yeah, oh, no. yeah. I, think, I think Arlo White said on commentary, and he grimaces in pain. I'm like, no, no grimace, <laughs> no pain. I'd rather he didn't score if it means that he doesn't have a grimace of pain. <laughs> oh, goodness. But, yeah, uh, Really good to see Christian Pulisic get another man of the match performance. He was sensational. Um, he was sensational, and like it, it looked as like it's one of those things where I think with Christian you can tell pretty quickly in a match whether or not it's his day or not his day. Uh, at least at least for Chelsea, for the U.S. he's got a bit more freedom, and the game kind of right. comes to him a bit more. But for Chelsea. Like, first five, ten touches, you can kind of tell whether or not it's going to be his kind of game. And not only was it his kind of game, it was everyone's kind of game in those first ten minutes. I mean, for the first half hour, I guess you could say for Chelsea against Crystal Palace, they absolutely obliterated them. And and Pulisic was a huge part of that. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, pretty exciting times for Chelsea, I'd have to say. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, they got a two-goal advantage over Porto heading into the return leg of the quarterfinal this week at Champions League. So... They seem to be in a pretty good position there. We're going to come back to Champions League in one second, but I also want to talk, because this is a great time of the year for just big games. El Clasico is this weekend. Real Madrid 2, Barcelona 1 in an absolutely fantastic game. And suddenly here with a lady dropping points again, tying Betis on Sunday, just two points now separate the top three in La Liga, Atletico Madrid on top, Real Madrid one point behind and one point behind Real Madrid is Barcelona, which is still very much in it despite losing to Real Madrid. My question to you about this game, Ronald Koeman decides to sit Antoine Griezmann and then brings him on after a first half, which was dominated by Real Madrid. Did Ronald Koeman get out coached this game? I understood what he was trying to do in taking Griezmann off, and it ultimately comes down to needing to have a different approach in bigger matches because really the takeaway from this season is Barcelona look great when they play opponents who are worse than them, but when they face opponents who are at the same level or better than them, they get run off the park. I mean, against Paris Saint-Germain in that, in that first leg of the round of 16, in the first El Clasico, in this El Clasico, in the group stage against Juventus when they got hammered at home, they don't beat teams who are better than them. They don't beat teams who can hit them on the counter and have pace. And one of the things that you most see is a vulnerability through the middle of the park. There was one time where I I, I turned the game on. I was kind of you know transitioning between things, and I watched about a, a 15-minute stretch in which it didn't seem as if they had a midfield. It's really hard for them. I, you basically have two choices when you have a midfield of De Jong and Busquets. You have to keep the ball all the time, or anytime you give the ball away, you have to commit a foul straight away, which is basically the Pep Guardiola tactic, right? But the moment that Real Madrid got running forward, it seems as though that midfield was gone. 
They have no cover in there whatsoever, and I think that's what leaves them so vulnerable to get hit on the break. They just look so stretched, and it's why Jared PK. There's a, a, a kind of a clip that went viral that first leg against PSG where he's just shouting "larga, larga posesión, larga posesión." Like, can we keep? We need to keep the ball, otherwise we're gonna get the runaround. And I just don't. I just don't think that they have an adjustment. So they can beat bad teams, no problem. But for the moment, when they play opposition who can match them with that attacking quality, they get run off the park. I do like it when coaches recognize they make a mistake at halftime and, you know, he brought Griezmann on and and Barcelona was much better in the second half. It probably, I mean, they hit the crossbar in the final seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, they would have left there with a point. But still, I'd prefer coaches to get it right from the start. Call me yeah, crazy. Well, 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 to me, the interesting thing was uh, Flick in midweek in the Champions League uh, one of them was forced by by uh, by injury, but making two first half substitutions because I think he must have recognized I got this way wrong against Paris Saint Germain, and they they eventually came back and at least made it a game and leave themselves with a chance in the second leg. But I think I, I'm actually surprised that particularly in the Champions League where it's two games for your season that more of those kind of desperate decisions don't get made even before halftime. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I mean, I, I also want to say about Real Madrid, just a fantastic week. Yeah, for Real Madrid, three-one win over Liverpool in their quarterfinal Champions League leg one, winning the El Clasico for the third straight time. I think I saw that Zidane is the first manager to do that since like the nineteen seventies, mm-hmm. um, and and really the emergence, maybe like finally of Vinicius Junior yeah. as as someone who is a real big game threat, and and so, kind of something we've been expecting hoping to see for a while and and really saw that against Liverpool saw it again against Barcelona um and and suddenly Real Madrid is looking like a team that could win Champions League maybe is the favorite now to win La Liga because Atleti is just dropping points left and right that's tremendously impressive for Zidane who, who maybe doesn't you know, who doesn't have all of his top guys is missing his two starting central defenders right now, Sergio Ramos and Rafael Varane, but is getting it done. And seems to be able to get his sides to be ready for the run-in, right? That's kind of like his hallmark is, I mean, you look at, you know, obviously all the Champions League wins, but even a year ago, right? Or a season ago, it's not a year ago, but a season ago, after the COVID lockdown, they come back. And Real just runs off, was it 10 wins out of 11 to run yeah. away with the league title? So it seems though he figures out how to coach towards the end of the season. But I feel like with a stronger Barcelona, with a stronger Atletico Madrid, they would, they would have already established a margin between themselves and Real because they dropped so many results up until then. Particularly when you're managing what is a largely older group of players. It's actually kind of surprising when you go through the Real team, how many players kind of 28, 29 and over that they have in it. You have to basically be aiming to peak at around this time. And it seems like Real are. So I would make them the favorite to win La Liga. And honestly, given that, you know, they, they have such a strong position against Liverpool and they'll, they'll play either Chelsea or Porto, they're probably the team right now most likely to make the Champions League final. So mm-hmm. I, I, I would definitely say that they're headed towards a brilliant stretch run here. Now, I want to talk about UEFA Champions League quarterfinals. There are four of them, obviously, because they're quarterfinals. And I'm wondering which, if any, of the advantages that do you see the current advantages after the first leg? Do you see being turned around in the return legs in a couple of days here? Because 
here's what we've got. We've got Chelsea 2 nil against Porto, PSG 3-2 against Bayern Munich, Man City 2-1 against Dortmund, and Real Madrid 3-1 against Liverpool. Three of those four games had away goals. And crazy stuff can happen. It's much much easier for crazy stuff to happen when there were away goals by the team that doesn't have the advantage going into leg two. Do you see any of these being turned around? I would say the most likely would be Bayern Munich. I know that PSG have the three away goals, but I, I think if PSG had won the first leg 5-0, I would have said that Bayern still has a chance <laughs> just because I'm such a believer in Bayern and what they can do going forward. Um, and I thought they played pretty well after they went 2-0 down in that game. So I definitely think Bayern have a chance uh, to score a few goals away from home. Obviously, with with Lewandowski, that would be so much more likely. But even with Eric Maxim Chupamoting, they have a chance to create enough chances. So I would definitely make them the favorites to overturn a, a first leg. But I have to be honest, I think second favorite? is Borussia Dortmund against Manchester City. And I watched the whole of that game, Man City and Borussia Dortmund. I was really impressed with Dortmund's performance. And I know that they go back in the league and they go back uh, to at least struggling uh, to get a late result. They eventually turned around and Gio Reyna had a good performance for Dortmund in that one. But... I just thought that they had answers for a lot of what Manchester City do. They made Manchester City uncomfortable. And it's not like, you know, Pep didn't do his tactical thing that we expected him to do. He went with what I thought was his best team. And they played that false nine and all that. But I think as well, when you look at the Leeds match, I always find interesting when a, a team has a domestic title locked up and they start thinking about rest rotation and, and, and not necessarily going out to win every game. If you do lose a bit of that sharpness... And I think that City did not have that much sharpness in the, in that first leg against Dortmund. So if Erling Haaland pulls off a brilliant performance, you wouldn't be that shocked. And you wouldn't be that shocked given City's Champions League record if they turned in another bad performance away from home. So uh, I would make them second favorites to, to pull off a second leg upset. You know, that's interesting. Like, I actually think Liverpool has a shot to turn this around against Real Madrid. Um, only because they can't, only because they can't be as bad as they were in the first half against Real. Oh my God, were they bad? They were, they were, and Nabi Keita maybe playing the worst game I've ever seen him play. Um, Oof. But I, they just let he just didn't put any pressure on Tony Kroos, and that yeah. really came back to haunt him. But I thought Liverpool was better in the second half. They got an away goal, so it's not outside the realm. Look, if they win two not two nil, they they can they advance um we've seen liverpool do this before they've obviously had issues at home uh i still i agree with you i think the most likely one to be turned around here is bayern munich against psg and that's not a knock against psg more than sort of an affirmation of bayern munich um but i don't think with no fans in the stadium that that like that's an issue really for players so much um i almost wish they didn't even have the away goals rule uh, you know, during this tournament as a well, result. Well, especially especially for the Chelsea-Porto tie where they're playing the two games in the same venue. Yeah, I mean, that's um, absolutely ridiculous. We should mention Porto just because uh, they do get a couple of players back, Oliveira and Taremi, uh, who were suspended from uh, the, the Juventus second leg. So, I mean, maybe, but the, the best case scenario, them scoring two goals is extra time. And if you presume that Chelsea can get one, which, I mean, you don't even, you don't expect them to concede two unless they're playing West Bromwich Albion. Uh, but it, it, like, you don't expect them to concede two. So uh, I, I would say they're pretty well up against it. I actually, I'm going to say this now. I think Bayern will find a way to get 
to turn it around. I don't think anyone else will. But okay. they should all be fun games midweek. There's another Champions League, too, midweek. CONCACAF Champions League. Round the better of 16. Champions League. <laughs> we mentioned this earlier. MLS teams, a very good first week. Do you think all five MLS teams will advance to the quarterfinals? I do not. So I would say, based off first leg performance, I thought everyone played pretty well except for Toronto. And Toronto, they, they ground out that result and fair play. But how many golden opportunities did Leon yeah. squander in that tie? And uh, I, I, I'm no longer covering Mexican football in the way that I was. But my lasting impression is I will, I will always enjoy watching Leon play. I think they're brilliant going forward. And they're struggling after winning the league title. But they can always create chances, and I don't think it particularly matters where they're playing. They're always going to have a go. So I actually expect Leon to go through to the quarterfinal, but I would say everybody else is in a pretty good shape. Um, maybe Brad Guzan's absence after taking a red card can hurt Atlanta United. I know the the, the reserve came in and did a good job, but uh, is it, do you expect Lightning to strike twice there? Um, but So I'd say Atlanta probably could be on shaking ground. Portland as well, having given away a couple of goals. I don't know if you love kind of being on, on level terms heading into that second leg, but uh, I would definitely say that Toronto, um, are, even though you could say that they're betting favorites, a favor based off of odds and what's happened in previous editions where you go home, um, but given that Josie Altidor could be hurt again, given that they're, they aren't at full strength, I would say that Leon will advance ahead of Toronto, but I think all the other four teams will go through. It's pretty incredible when you look at it that there is no MLS team of these five that is at a deficit nope. heading back home for the return leg. So I'm going to actually go out on a limb here and say all five MLS wow. teams will advance to the final eight. And if if that if Toronto can get by Leon, Leon, that to me is the one sort of measuring stick game. You know, the other ones you sort of thought, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the Costa Rican League because they've certainly given MLS teams trouble over the years. Um, and by the way, I think Columbus could win the tournament. Just, yeah. I, I really do think that's a team that not only is, you know, we saw them win the MLS championship, but they they really loaded up in the offseason. And in a, in a, in a way that it. champions usually don't. Right. And, and so... Yeah, you know, we'll have more time to talk about that because the you know future rounds of this aren't going to be for a while yet. But um, this could be—I mean, you don't want to jinx it or anything—but like this could be a watershed situation for MLS if five of the eight quarterfinalists are from this league. And, and honestly, if even if they get four, I think they should feel pretty good about that. Less than four, I think, would be a real disappointment after the first week. So. We shall see. What we do know is 13 years have passed and we have yet MLS teams are still wanting to win this thing. So might as well end that streak this year. Um, I want to switch over a little bit to the women's game because there's a lot going on there too. We're in a FIFA window. Sweden won. U.S. women's national team won. That ends the U.S.'s 16-game win streak. Nearly ended their 37-game unbeaten streak. But the U.S. got a late penalty, sort of a disputed one, earned by Kelly O'Hara. Megan Rapino converts it and comes out of there with a draw. But what do you take away from this game? Well, I take away another per performance from the United States that wasn't particularly good. Uh, watching them in the She Believes Cup, uh, there were a few moments where 
I was kind of doubting whether or not this team is kind of progressing even from a stylistic point of view or just generally growing. You wonder as well. I, I saw there was a few conversations on social media about, you know, taking a player like Carly Lloyd to the Olympics. You know, is is she still figuring in this national team even now? And kind of when is that next generation fully going to bleed through? But for me, a, a quality of performance that wasn't particularly encouraging ahead of an Olympics, I think it will need to be better from the U.S. as we head towards uh, Tokyo 2020. And ultimately, just generally, with the growth of the European game, I, I've been watching a, a fair bit of the Women's Champions League this year because uh, we're we've been covering Chelsea's run in it, and that level is getting a lot higher. And right. so for the, I think European countries in the next 10 years are going to have a lot to say for the women's game on the international stage. So uh, I, I think that the U.S. needs to evolve a little bit. So just generally from a long-term perspective, but on the penalty, um, I thought it was just about. I understand that the definitive contact for the foul comes outside of the area, but there's also an arm that goes through the head of O'Hara that can kind of signal that that could have also been part of the contact. It maybe right. is not enough. It's not enough to give a penalty, but it's enough to be part of the contact. So I'd say it's just about a penalty in my view. Yeah, it was interesting to me, and I guess this can be this way with penalties sometimes, especially if they're borderline on the location. Like half my, my timeline on Twitter was people who were 100% certain that it was a penalty. Other half was people 100% certain it wasn't a penalty. And I was just one of this group that was like, eh, I don't know, I can't really tell. Um, <laughs> and... And I have no problem saying that, but um, very close to a U.S. loss, obviously a friendly, so no huge ramifications of that had happened, but they do have this winning or unbeaten streak uh, that's now at 38 games and, and running, heading into Tuesday's game at France, the last team to beat the U.S. back in early 2019. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting to learn about players. You know, we should say... Huge congratulations to Carly Lloyd for getting her 300th cap in this game, becoming only the third player ever to do that. Now, now, um, now I feel bad for bringing her up in the context of should she still be playing? But you know what? That's what's like if if we're talking sports here, I think it's possible to do both to say Carly Lloyd, that's an amazing accomplishment to get to 300 caps, but also to ask the question at 38. She's 38, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like. I know she's fit. I know she's worked really hard. And she'll probably get angry at me for saying this. I don't know if she's a starter for this team at this point. Yeah, and she'll be she'll be 39 in the summer as well. But, I mean, with so many talented young American players, particularly in attacking areas, uh, you can certainly make the argument that now is the time. But look, Vlako Andonovsky is the one who sees her and can, can judge her level of fitness and her level of ability to run for the team. And he keeps picking her, so uh, we can't necessarily question it. And Lloyd has done so much for this national team. In some ways, I don't think she's big, of, big enough of a hero, uh, given what she did in the 2015 final. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, in some respects, these women are such massive personalities that you kind of have to pry the national team from their cold, dead hands. And I don't think Carly Lloyd is just going to give up on this until the very last moment. Correct. Um, it'll be very very interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of months because only 18 players will make the Olympic team roster as opposed to 23 for the World Cup. So there's going to be some really difficult choices that Vladko Andonovsky has to make. Um, also, in the women's game... NWSL had its first weekend of the Challenge Cup, and I enjoyed watching a lot of these games. Uh, 
you know, the first one actually, Houston, Chicago, was kind of a snoozer, but the the rest had a lot to discuss. Trinity Rodman gets uh, a goal in her debut, 18 years old uh, for Washington. They end up losing to North Carolina, which is a terrific team, but that's probably the main talking point is Trinity Rodman coming out of there. Just tremendously well taken first touch and finish uh, in that game. So that's a, a bit of excitement there. Uh, late night, Portland beats Kansas City 2-1. to one. Uh, Kansas City playing its first game now that they move back to, to KC. Uh, people throwing hands near the end of that game. That Red was cards. great. I, that was it, awesome. <laughs> And then Louisville, playing its first ever game in the NWSL, gets a stoppage time equalizer to get a 2-2 tie with Orlando. And that was a game being played in the new stadium in Louisville. And just a really cool atmosphere uh, around that whole game. Um, I feel like like these are two teams that are you know examples of the wider league. NWSL kits are awesome this yes. year. They have been for a while, much better than MLS. Definitely an example with Orlando wearing their kit that went to space or something. And, <laughs> I and think there were two kits in NWSL that went to space, which is crazy. <laughs> and and Louisville's, which is just awesome. Um, take my money. Uh, and <laughs> like, but just to see the the excitement around things, I wanted to ask you about one thing in particular because mm. this ended up getting some traction on social media on Saturday night when Louisville scores a goal, they do this whole thing where they like do a light show and they turn off the stadium lights and it's like a disco type situation. And some people loved it. Some people didn't love it. Some people called it Bush league. I kind of loved it. It reminded me of watching Kansas city comets indoor games as a kid in the early eighties. They do that in Kansas city and it just got me fired up. What's your take? I loved it. The more yeah. spectacle, the more spectacle, the better. There's not enough spectacle in soccer in our country. We need like the, the more of it. And that was like such a cool moment too, because it's a stoppage time equalizer to get racing Louisville, their first ever point in, in NWSL. It's a really cool moment for those fans. And it's just, it becomes a show. I, I thought it was super fun. And just in general, I think Louisville is probably the most underrated soccer city in America uh, yeah. because they're, men's team was playing in the USL and they were getting really good crowds, but at a baseball stadium and probably the most narrow one in the league. And so it's a lead the city that doesn't get enough credit for in consistent seven, eight, 9,000 fans that make a good noise. And in that new stadium, which is gorgeous, by the way, um, they got like, they were probably the most pandemic risky last year. They had, you know, 5,000 fans in when no one was bringing fans in. And then this year, the same thing. They create a legitimate atmosphere. And I think Louisville deserves far more credit for what they've done as a soccer city. So I think it was really cool for them to get that kind of moment of shine on a Saturday night and ultimately at least emerge with one NWSL point. So much going on in the soccer world right now. Chris Whittingham, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Daryl DK as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.